we did it. Or you did it, rather. We had so much fun raising money for our beloved community radio station last week. Connecting with you, our listeners, is a highlight of Radiothon, and it fills us every time. If you missed your favorite show or want to snag a new tea or hoodie, we saved some goodies for you. Drop by krcl.org. Thank you. And I second that emotion right there from Shell Yeah of KRCL. Thank you for your support. I'm Laura Jones, and welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. On the show tonight, Carrie Galloway of Planned Parenthood Association of Utah, the nonprofit healthcare provider, is getting ready to celebrate 50 years in our community. And Carrie's watching closely the Supreme Court as it hears several cases that could effectively delete Roe v. Wade, the court's landmark 1973 decision protecting a pregnant woman's right to choose to have an abortion. Later this hour, Dr. Susan Madsen and Robin Scribner of the Utah Women in Leadership Project are back. They'll be talking about their latest research and policy brief, exploring Utah-centric sexism through language. But first, in 2019, more than 90% of Utahns in eviction hearings didn't have legal representation, while the majority of their landlords did. To start the show tonight, we talked to folks working at a nonprofit trying to close that access to justice gap by providing free legal advice for housing issues and free or low-cost legal representation in eviction cases in Salt Lake County. So let's pass the microphone and find out more. Hi, I'm Danielle Stevens, Executive Director of People's Legal Aid, a nonprofit 501c law firm based in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my name is Aro Han. I'm one of the attorneys that works at People's Legal Aid. Can you just kind of give us the the 411, Danielle, on the organization when you started and why? Absolutely. We were founded in March 2020. Our founder and former executive director, Jeffrey Daybell, recognized this access to justice gap for tenants facing eviction in Utah uh, when he was actually a volunteer attorney on the consolidated eviction calendar in 3rd District, Salt Lake County. And that was really the catalyst for his uh, vision and desire to start this very niche organization um, where we serve people specifically facing eviction in Utah and eviction-related debt. How big a problem is eviction in Utah and eviction-related debt? It's a a significant problem um, in that tenants um, do not have a wide breadth of rights as renters in Utah. And the law certainly is not on the tenant side um, in these types of proceedings. And generally when an eviction starts, it is incredibly difficult to stop that process. And um, organizationally, we uh, don't win the majority of our cases where we're representing tenants. And um, our greatest value add is really Uh, being there to negotiate better outcomes for clients um, on the other side of that eviction. So in getting started in March of 2020, was that just good timing or did your organization, those who put it together, see this coming as part of the pandemic? It has been a need in Utah for uh, a long time. And the pandemic really made evictions and the uh, trauma that's related uh, to evictions that much more visible and uh, made the environment in Utah much more suitable for starting an organization like this. Uh, There was certainly a lot more support behind it than there ever had been in the past. 
and um, uh, significant recognition from the legal community about the need for there to be fairer access to legal representation for tenants. Aro, as a staff attorney, can you kind of describe the folks you're helping out? I think a lot of folks might be listening to this going, well, if you're facing eviction, then you must have done something to get yourself there. And that isn't the case. That definitely isn't the case for, I think, a majority of our tenants. A lot of them are people who have been hardworking their entire lives and have fallen on hard times, especially in the pandemic. You know, hours were cut, if not jobs completely lost. It could be a matter of people had to take go back home to stay with their kids because they lost uh, childcare options. So this image that we have of a person facing eviction must have done something wrong. It's usually not the case. It's usually that something happened and one month they fell behind and they couldn't catch back up because bills pile up and life happens. According to data sent to me by People's Legal Aid in 2019, more than 90 percent of Utahns in eviction hearings didn't have legal representation while the majority of their landlords did. I've been seeing a lot of stories about a particular landlord group with a lawmaker on the payroll. It's a family business, and uh, I've also written really landlord-friendly bills as as a result. And I'm just kind of curious, um, uh, Danielle, about the folks you've been able to help. How many since you started? Uh, since we started, it's um, on the order of uh, close to 2,000 households since uh, March 2020. This year alone, we have represented 711 cases in eviction proceedings and provided 357 legal consultations. Um, Just uh, for reference, the eviction proceedings are the most downstream approach to what we do. Uh, we We represent clients in what's called a consolidated eviction calendar in um, 3rd District Salt Lake County, 3rd District Tooele County, and 2nd District Farmington, where uh, the courts automatically appoint PLA as representation for clients. And then um, we're there to to advocate for them at the occupancy hearing. And the legal consultation is a slightly more upstream approach to what we do. And uh, we hope that we are able to catch tenants uh, before that eviction is actually filed and uh, be able to represent them uh, even longer and and get even better outcomes for them. When we're in a housing crisis and our homelessness population is growing, it seems like the best answer is to keep people in their homes, Danielle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We prioritize a stable living situation as a a precondition for tenant success. Uh, Without a safe and warm place to live, it's difficult to hold down a job, get your kids to school, uh, make sure that, you know, the rest of your bills are paid and that you're able to remain financially stable. And and sometimes an eviction also means uh, experiencing homelessness and needing to enter the shelter system. Uh, lots of scary things, especially without representation. Aro is staff attorney with People's Legal Aid. Tell me what an average, and there's no average case, but can you kind of walk me through what it means when you get this three-day local eviction notice, but then there are these provisions uh, through the CARES Act that give you 30 days, and these I've been reading in local coverage from the Tribune, the City Weekly, are at odds with each other, and tenants really have no idea and may just, you know, I've got three days, i got to get out, not know their rights, Aro. Right. So the three-day notice to comply, there are many types of notices. The most common are three-day pay or vacate, comply or vacate, et cetera. So I'll operate it off of three-day notices. So that notice is still binding under state law. And that once that expires, that can start the lawsuit. The issue with the CARES Act is that 
the way the CARES Act has been interpreted in the state of Utah is that they must provide the notice, yes, but it doesn't mean 30 days from the, when you receive the notice to when they can file the lawsuit. It just means from the day that you receive the notice to when you're actually forced out, it should equal at least 30 days. And on average, I have not had yet had a case that progresses that quickly unless the tenant defaulted if they failed to answer. That's the only reason an eviction could move so quickly. Generally speaking, if the, if the tenant answers the lawsuit and it's set for a hearing, it will always take longer than 30 days. So that defense never has come up in court. So I'm a renter. I get a three-day notice taped to my door. What should I do, R.O.? If you're a renter and you receive a three-day notice to anything, any type of eviction notice, you should call either People's Legal Aid. Utah Legal Services also does consultations as well. We do uh, represent more. Or we do provide consultations to more individuals. We have fewer parameters. Um, we we can help undocumented individuals um, as well. So talk to somebody understand the law because the problem a lot of tenants face is they think, oh, they can't evict me right now. It's a pandemic. Everything's crazy. How could they possibly do that? And they don't read up on the law because unfortunately it is a pandemic, but there are fewer protections for tenants than many are willing to believe. So it's very important to actually speak to someone who can explain that to you. One of the things that's so aggravating to me to read about is when folks are evicted and then the landlords keep coming after them and the damages keep going up and up and up. One of the things that People's Legal Aid has been able to do is reduce tenant financial obligations after an eviction by more than $415,000 or more than $4,000 per client on average. How does that work, Danielle? Um, So uh, I will uh, clarify by saying that um, that $450,000 $415,000 is what we've been able to negotiate down this year alone. Um, I don't have data on hand right now for 2020, but um, RO can speak better to how we represent people in uh, the debt collection phase and and the impact that we have on clients. Yeah, RO, there's the eviction, but then there's this ongoing debt collection I've been reading about. Yes. So if you have a written agreement in the state of Utah and they can come after you in debt collection court, the statute of limitations for that debt is actually six years. So that's quite a long period of time. A tenant may have completely forgotten about the fact that they left a lease early or that they were evicted. Well, they probably wouldn't forget the eviction, but they probably didn't realize that there's something called treble damages in Utah. So that's from the day the notice expired to the day you actually vacated, you owe three times the daily rent. Also in the state of Utah, the winning party is entitled to attorney's fees and costs of bringing the lawsuit. And it's also in most leases in Utah as well. So a tenant, if they are evicted, is responsible not only for the time that they stayed in the rental unit three times the normal amount, but also for attorney's fees and costs. And that will eventually they will come to collect on that. And what we can do is we can help negotiate to bring that down. Obviously, the landlord in that situation has most of the power as if the facts aren't on the tenant side. If you stayed in the unit, you'd stayed in the unit and there's not much we can do about the treble damages. But generally speaking, we are able to get lower outcomes through negotiation. So the cynic in me, Danielle, feels like the folks who can afford it the least are the ones getting pummeled by the way the law is written. That uh, these treble damages that follow you after you're evicted um, can be very destructive to a person's life. Any comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Laura, it is true that 
tenants lose most of the time in uh, Utah's landlord-tenant eviction court matters. That said, for anyone who's a non-attorney, the law is really difficult to understand. And uh, I myself am a a non-attorney and uh, learning a lot in my role here at People's Legal Aid. And the court system and processes are also so hard to navigate. And when you consider that the majority of Utahns do not have access to legal representation in in these uh, eviction proceedings, it is not hard to imagine how and why they have such poor outcomes. We cannot stress enough at People's Legal Aid, if you are a tenant experiencing landlord-tenant concerns or you are already in the eviction process, reach out to us, find out what your options are. Um, Your options are incredibly worse the farther an eviction proceeds. And even though we uh, are not able to prevent an eviction most of the time, our uh, representation has real positive impact on our clients. And every case is different, but in many scenarios, we've been able to ne- negotiate more days in residence for our clients to uh, stay in their homes before they must vacate, which means more time to find other housing and less likelihood of becoming homeless. And uh, in, in some cases, able to negotiate down the fees or damages that incur through these processes. And that has a direct impact on the long-term financial stability of people that are going through this traumatic process. People's Legal Aid is uh, also ready to help folks in English and Spanish. And there's a hotline, Danielle. The ways to contact us are intake at plautah.org or 801-477-6975. You can text or call that phone number. And uh, please bear in mind that if you are in need of help, you must go through our intake to to, uh, speak with someone and um, possibly be scheduled for a consultation. I guess you've probably been busier than ever given Utah's housing crisis and lack of affordable units. Yes, there is uh, more demand than we have capacity to meet. Uh, We have represented clients in uh, various districts throughout the state, but our heaviest presence is currently in Salt Lake County. Uh, We have uh, some funding challenges as a new nonprofit and um, just general barriers as a nonprofit organization that are making it difficult to serve people outside of the state's capital. So uh, we are gearing up for our Giving Tuesday campaign. Giving Tuesday is November 30th of this year, the Global Day of Giving. And uh, we are asking for this community support to in, to ensure that we are able to continue representing not only people in Salt Lake County, but people who are very much in need um, in other parts of the state as well. We'll put notes in tonight's show notes so folks can connect to people's legal aid easily, whether that's online or by phone, Danielle. And Aro, if I can just go back to you to close, what would be your advice for someone listening to this that's facing eviction or someone they know and love is facing eviction? What would you suggest they do? Again, my greatest suggestion is to speak to an attorney. Again, even if it's not people's legal aid, Utah Legal Services offers consultations as well. It's very important that tenants understand the law and the law is not very accessible. And if you just Google it, you're going to find laws from California, New York, and they have very, very different protections for tenants. So it's very important that you speak to an attorney who knows the law in Utah. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, You will be better informed and you will know more about what your rights are if you speak to an attorney. And of course, I always like to give my guests the opportunity to add to our playlist for the night's show. What do you got, Aro and Danielle? 
Uh, I'll go first. I recommend Our House by, it's a cover by Head in the Heart, actually. We can do that for you. Why that song? Um, I think it invokes a really good message that things may have been hard before, but you're, you are still capable of a good life. A lot of our tenants tend to think that their life is over once they've been evicted, and it's not always the case that there is still hope and you can have a good home. The 13th Annual Gender Evolution Conference will be on November 13th. This virtual conference is hosted by the Utah Pride Center and will feature 20 lectures, workshops, and panels by members of the LGBTQIA community and their allies. Registration at utahpridecenter.org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. And still to come, the Utah Women and Leadership Project's latest study exploring Utah-centric sexism through language. Planned Parenthood Association of Utah is getting ready to celebrate 50 years in the community, but they're also watching what's going on at the Supreme Court. When it comes to Roe v. Wade, and a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. Hi, Carrie Galloway from Planned Parenthood. So Carrie, I catch you in between court cases, I have a feeling. From October through the end of the year, it seems like Supreme Court of the United States has nothing but abortion on its docket. That's not true, but it feels that way, right? It does. So They're give- very concerned with our bodies and how we're using them. <laughs> In October, there was a Bands Off Our Bodies rally at the Utah Capitol around the country. And now we await some rulings, but also more court cases. Can you give us an update on where we stand with Roe v. Wade and its survival? Well, you've characterized it well, as usual, Laura. Um, We're between court cases. And what I find most fascinating is what they've heard a couple weeks ago from Texas has stumped them. I always thought growing up that the Supreme Court were the smartest people on the block. They knew the law inside and out, and um, Texas has stumped them. And um, their vigil anti approach to enforcing Um, an anti-reproductive rights law has really thrown them for a loop. And they're even, it seems, afraid to hear the case because numerous courts, as well as the Supreme Court, have had the opportunity to stay the law and allow the constitutional laws to remain in effect while they argue it, and no one is doing that. And so it is like the women and families of Texas have no constitutional rights to their own bodies. And correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Chief Justice John Roberts find himself in the minority now on this issue and sides with the more liberal side of the court in trying to keep protections? It does, and I hate to put a lot of faith in that because I I just don't know how sincere it is except for the reputation of the Roberts Court. But um, we really just don't know what to expect. 
um, I actually listened to the proceedings a couple of weeks ago, and you never know from the questions that the justices act if they're just looking for an answer to get on the books or if they philosophically believe in what they're leading with the question. So I'm just not sure. I'm just so frustrated, so sad, so, to be perfectly honest, scared, Laura. And why? Let's let's talk about that, because I feel that folks who who support the repeal of Roe v. Wade don't have the same fear for women's reproductive rights, but what the repeal of Roe v. Wade might do to privacy in general, which many scholars have been writing about, that that Roe v. Wade hinges on privacy, and this could be applied or be unintended consequences on other issues. It certainly could, using the vigilante approach to justice, because what Texas legislature has done to get around what is the common sense way of arguing laws that people aren't in agreement on is to go through the courts. What they have done with their current SB8, and it's affectionately known, is they have said, it's not the state of Texas who enforces the law. It's individuals who will see something wrong being done to anyone, or to be perfectly honest, Laura, someone in Utah can see or suspect that someone in Texas has had an abortion, call foul, and set up a lawsuit. And it's that vigilante style of justice telling on your neighbors, and there's a bounty. It is no less than $10,000 if you win. Plus court costs. Plus court costs, yeah, just the court costs too. Well, does the court just need someone to bring in a case about the vigilante justice aspect of this? Are they splitting hairs in that regard? You would think so. At least three or more have been filed, but no one's taken them up because they don't like the way who filed them, what the reason was for filing them. Um, We are unfortunately almost with a standstill and what it is effectively done is eliminate the right for women in Texas to get a pregnancy termination, an abortion in their home state. They need to leave the state. And if you've been listening to the stories, either on NPR or reading them in the print, um, they're devastating stories about the cost, the emotional cost, the actual cost, the um, isolation, that women feel because the family can't afford to support them and go with them to Oklahoma or to California or New Mexico to terminate their pregnancy. And I don't even want to get into that every pregnancy has a story and it's the woman and her family 
who should be able to solve that um, ending to that story. Um, it is a cluster, as they say, Laura, and I'm being very good today. Thank you. It's, it's a cluster. And um, we know that time is ticking and that Utah will come into session in just a few months. And we've heard rumblings of people wanting to put it into play here in Utah. The vigilante now, aspect, is that what you're talking about in the January session? Yes, the session? vigilante okay, aspect. The legislature. Okay. And to me, I admit I wasn't born in Utah, but I've been here over 35 years, almost 40. And I'm not here for vigilante justice. That's not how the people in Utah behave. And um, I have to say, we, ha we had some exciting news when um, uh, Chris Jansen uh, left the fold of lawmakers. You know, Utah lawmaker, uh, Steve Chris Jansen, right? Yes. And because he was one of the people who felt just like he felt that we ought to audit the results of the election here in Utah, we needed some vigilante justice. On the issue of abortion, um, yes. So, um, you know, but there are others waiting in the wings. And so, and just a few short weeks, December 1st, we'll be here. And this is where I think the Supreme Court was waiting to hear uh, an abortion case because they chose to take up the Mississippi case of the state allowing to make their own rules at 15 weeks. And that's the one that Utah's trigger bill hinges on, correct? It Well, the trigger bill could hinge on them all, but it also hinges on our own 18-week law that passed through the legislature and is in abeyance, as they say, um, for its lawsuit waiting for the Supreme Court to rule. This is the second time the judge had put it on hold to wait and hear with what's happening to the Supreme Court. We dodged a bullet the first time. They ruled that we still had standing. Um, if they rule in the 15-week case, we don't know where the 18-week case will go. If they'll just drop it and stick with 15, as women, it's feeling like other people are deciding our lives. And though um, so for many of us, we've felt this way through time, um, it's very hard to hang in the balance with our sexual and reproductive health rights. Another unusual aspect of this current attack on Roe v. Wade is that Supreme Court justices are speaking out so vocally and publicly about other justices. I'm thinking of um, jurist Sonia Sotomayor castigating her fellow jurists on this issue, saying this is a constitutional issue and you can't put something on hold till we hear this. Yeah, there's um, just where I've been surprised that they're not the smartest people in the room. Um, they've been surprised that people are questioning them. Um, we think back to people wondering if um, 
They are working on politics instead of the law. Oh, my goodness. How dare people question the integrity? And then yeah, the, usually the goodness. justices keep this close to the vest and they're they're engaging in uh, you know the public square, it seems like. They certainly are, um, especially when people might question them or their motives. Um, it's it's a cluster, Laura, and um, we've got to get to the other side. But unfortunately, no matter when we get to the other side these days, something else pops up. Yeah. And um, so, uh, as I always say, it's never a dull moment in the world of Planned Parenthood, um, nationally or internationally for our mission, um, locally Planned Parenthood of Utah, no matter what's going on around us, we are here to make sure that the people of Utah have the information they need, the um, services accessible to them and the rights as far as we can hold them to plan and execute their sexual and reproductive health care. And, you know, whether it's a pandemic or a hurricane or a um, tornado, we've kept our doors open. We're seeing people. Um, hopefully people are making wise decision. Um, safe sex is always the first thing on their mind. You know, I keep trying. <laughs> well, the other thing you keep trying is to have your gala, and you've decided to go virtual and get your party on on Saturday, December 18th with Herstory, History, Their Story, Our Story. Tell us about this 50th anniversary celebration for Planned Parenthood in Utah. Well, you know, the cake is getting stale, Laura. <laughs> You haven't kept was, it in the freezer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This was first planned to happen um, near the end of March in 2020. And then we had a pandemic and being a responsible public health organization, we needed to postpone. We learned that postpone is a very loaded world, <laughs> word when you're dealing with a pandemic. And we've had a number of false starts thinking that things were getting better and we could hold it. And we have finally decided that um, we've got to have the cake. We've got to let people bid on these incredible donations of goods and treats and experiences that supporters of Planned Parenthood have donated to us um, for an auction. We need to celebrate. 50 years of providing health care, education, and public affairs to the people of Utah. And we've got to let our friends enjoy a couple of jokes on us. Um, a little bit of music, a little bit of just celebration, and do it the way where people buy tables and instead they get a box in the mail with a little bit of um, fun and frivolity and games and they can gather with their families or their bubble people and celebrate the work that's been done to keep Utah healthy, happy, 
and celebrating good sex. There you go. I knew you'd get to that one. Folks, check tonight's show notes for a link to the December gala. I got a, uh, got one thing before we wrap here, Carrie. I was watching a sketch from Saturday Night Live where Cecily Strong is dressed as a clown to have some clown fun while talking about abortion. And it's this closer line. I'll put it in the show notes, folks. You can go check it out where she closes with, nobody wants a bunch of dead clowns in a dark alley. Trying to have a conversation about abortion and why it is so important to fight for women's reproductive rights was underscored for me by that line. I mean, I was born in 66, so I don't have memories of women in alleys dying from botched abortions. Um, But my father was in med school in D.C. at the time, and he remembers quite vividly the women who made it to the ER, some in time to be saved, some not. And although he always made sure his patients had access, he didn't provide the abortions once he became a private practicing physician. He believes in a woman's right to choose. And I just think that people don't remember. They don't remember and they don't think things through to the end. And um, stopping women from being able to actualize their own lives is going to have consequences um, as well also. Um, And um, Saturday Night Live, sometimes I have to say is almost too deep for me, but um, it, it pointed out the absurdity of the whole argument as well as the reality of the entire argument of other people deciding for you how to best live your life. Carrie Galloway of Planned Parenthood Association of Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the organization and its 50th anniversary coming up in December. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. We'll be right back. Lean on Utah seeks new or gently used metal crutches, canes, walkers, and non-motorized wheelchairs. If you don't need it anymore, dust it off and donate it November 13th. More details on the Connect page of krcl.org. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. Thank you so much for your generosity during Radiothon. You know, if you missed it, you still have an opportunity to contribute always online at krcl.org. I don't think we've put in the order for the hoodies and t-shirts yet, so get on it and do your bit right now. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now! followed by Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Connor's Late Night Lowdown at 10.30, and Super Sounds with Chovy at 1 a.m. John Florence back to start your brand new day at 6, and you can find all of that, including the last two weeks of any show on demand, on our website, krcl.org. Our final guests this evening are back with some interesting data on language and sexism in Zion. To find out more, let's pass the microphone. Hi, I'm Robin Scribner. I'm a research fellow with the Utah Women in Leadership Project. This has been a very interesting research study that we've done on sexist comments, and we can't wait to talk about it more. Hi, Susan Madsen. I'm a professor of leadership in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University and also the founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. And this study has been one that's been on my mind for I don't know how many years. Robin and I have actually been talking about it for 
at least four or five years. And so it's finally starting to come out and we're excited, excited to talk about it. So we've had you on the show in the past many times, you and Robin, and I remember you kind of teasing me with this saying, we're doing this study, I want to come back on, have Robin with me and talk about the stuff that women hear. And that's what this is. It's not so much like a a global study of men and women and all of that. It's specifically asking women what they've experienced, as I recall, Dr. Madsen. Absolutely. So when we designed this study, we really wanted to, well, first of all, Robin and I, I mean, we we really talked about, yeah, we want to hear the comments, but the purpose really is for to create a tool. So to create a tool for women in terms of each other, like here are ideas of sexist comments, not just ideas, but stories, but then how can we respond to those when those things happen to us? So basically, we opened the floodgates uh, last summer. It's been well over a summer or, or a year. And we basically just to ask these women, here, here are a few demographic questions. We had demographics. We had a scale of nine-point scale. So we do have some quantitative data. However, most of it was tell us up to four comments, each person, up to four comments sexist comments and some behaviors, right, Robin, some behaviors. And then who were the people that did them? So we have uh, gender, what age, what, like, was it in politics? Was it in a church setting? Was it in the workplace? And then, and then what, what did you do? Or what do you wish you would have done or said? So that's what we have. And it is layers of information. And Robin has been the lead She'll have all the good details. <laughs> She's been the one to, and a few other, we've had a few other um, people who have helped code and so forth, but she's been the one to wrestle through all these amazing things. I'm sure Robin has has had uh, many, a few tears as she's reading things and a few laughs and a few disgusting, like just being disgusted and and so forth. Yeah, Robin, let's get into some of this quantitative uh, uh, side of it. Tell us, who did you hear from? Can you tell us about the people who answered the study first? First of all, uh, this was an opt-in study. So someone came back to us and said, how many women report hearing these? And, and that's not what we asked. We Anybody who answered the study, it was because they wanted to share comments. But, but most of us know, just anecdotally, everybody's heard comments like this. You can't be a woman over the age of three without, well, maybe even the age of six months before you start getting, oh, you're so pretty, you know, things like that. So anyway, this was, this was an opt-in study. So everybody that replied had, had these comments to share, but, but we did hear from women from a wide variety of backgrounds. We had women all across the age spectrum from 18 to more than 70. Um, Most of the women who replied to the study were married, um, they they were more educated than our average population. So this isn't necessarily representative of, of our uh, statewide population. There are um, respondents were uh, overwhelmingly white, although we did have representation for women of other ethnic and racial backgrounds, um, more likely to be employed full time than, uh, than women statewide. And uh, about 65% were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we had 23% that were no religion and, and women from other religious backgrounds as well. And, and then the majority, 
came of course across the Wasatch Front, just like our population basis. But we did have women answer this study from all across the state. So, so we heard a good uh, variety of stories from a lot of different types of women from different backgrounds across the state. So how did you analyze their experiences? Did any themes kind of bubble up? Yes. Yeah, so we started just with the way we often do with this qualitative data is just jumping in, beginning to read and figuring out where the patterns and themes uh, fall. And, and uh, we had a couple of researchers working on this for a long time. There were a lot of responses. We had more than 17, well, we had exactly 1,750 discrete individual comments. And, and yes, I will um, absolutely nod my head to what Susan said before. A lot of laughs, but many, many looks of disgust. I would all the time just kind of yell at my husband across the room and like, you have to listen to this. You have to listen to this comment that somebody just made. Some of these comments were just so outrageous. But just, just in terms of the themes, uh, we ended up with, you know, a lot of individual sub-themes, which we uh, eventually grouped into four major categories. So, and those will be the next four briefs that we release after this initial study overview. So they are um, inequity and bias, inequity and bias, stereotypes, undervaluing women, and objectification, which includes the sexualization and other types of objectification of women. So those are our four major themes that we ended up with. Dr. Madsen, what are women saying in this study about these comments and how it lands with them, how it affects them, how they know it affects them, how they know it may affect them but can't prove? Well, we did have an open-ended kind of other comments at the end where we did get some comments from people well throughout about the impact. And you know what I have to say is that that even though women experience many things the same, there are so many differences. And depending on the background, depending on your situation, um, you could have the same thing said to you that, that was said to, to appear, and maybe it didn't affect you as much. You just thought it was stupid. Like that was an idiot kind of comment for someone to make. While another woman really had, had some real trauma with that comment because of her situation, because of abuse that has happened. Um, and in all case, at minimum, people would just say, you know, that it's one more sign that that they just don't get it, that, that you know, well, for example, Laura, let me just tell you, I, I, I have worked with WEMA politicians and often, and this is very discriminatory, often, you know, they'll be like on a panel with other men who are running for office and they'll be the one that is asked, well, what would you do with your children if you became the mayor or if you became, you know, a city council member? And they're the only ones. The men have children, too, and they're the only ones. And so what that does, you know, people will say, well, that's interesting. But some people wouldn't even notice, first of all. And some would say, well, that is really interesting. But the, there's this little ding on that for most people that that maybe she's not supposed to be there because she's supposed to be in the home, and that um, and she can be in the home and run for office and do, you know, some of them take their kids and do all kinds of things at the same time. But just that question, just that sexist question, really can can impact it depending on who hears hears it. It can impact. Her view of should I do it? Should I not do it? Am I doing something wrong? And then other people's, well, I wonder why she's doing that. 
her kids might suffer because of this. All right, so respondents were given the options to include their response to sexist comments. So, Robin, give us some of the comments that women said they experienced, and if you can match them up, I'm not saying you have to, but it would be interesting, (laughs) what they wish they would have said in that moment. Do you have some gems? I do. And, you know, one of the very first ones that I read that has stuck with me because it was so powerful, uh, a woman said that her husband had told her that if she was going to be home full time, she better have a sparkling clean house and a smoking hot bod. And then she shared her response and, and the response was, I divorced him, which was very dramatic and, uh, you know, kind of a more more dramatic of the response that we saw in a lot of cases, but that was one that I never forgot. And it just shows the the types of things that, that some women are dealing with, with people in their lives who are literally jerks. Like, you know, that's a pretty jerk move to say. And so, so that was one that I always remember. But, but in terms of the less dramatic fashion, um, the comments and responses, our responses particularly broke down into a few categories. We had hundreds and hundreds of responses of, I did nothing. I said nothing. I was so shocked. I had no idea what to say in the moment. And then they said, what I wished I would have said was, you're a jerk or some snappy comeback. You know, the things that we think of in the shower days later, like, ah, this was the perfect thing I would have said. And that's, as Susan mentioned earlier, this is one of the reasons why we're creating this study. So women can ahead of time have those perfect comments ready. But but another thing that we found that was very common and, and also very effective was women just simply calmly in the moment provided information or education no, you're wrong what you just said, and here is why. And so um, that's hopefully something that we also help to equip women to be better prepared to respond in the moment. So this type of comment becomes less and less common. That's our ultimate goal is to help people understand this thing that you're saying, it's not okay. Here's why, here's what to say instead. I know that- I, I want to jump in and just, there's something important uh, with with what Robin said. So uh, another thing is when oftentimes they would pull them aside or or say something like, I, I know your heart and I know you didn't intend to do this, but do you, I want you to understand that when you say things this way, when you call women girls, that actually that's undermining them. And I know that's not your intent, but I just wanted you to know that that's what comes across. So, you know, I think that that is something that we heard from the people as well. And, and those kinds of things work to help educate. I'd love to hear some more of the inappropriate comments just for entertainment value, Robin. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll jump in and give one. What's one of your the one... all-time faves, Dr. Madsen? <laughs> because one of them, Robin provided um, a lot of comments, and I did a half-day training with 50 women in the state of Utah who were serving in public office. And so they were all the ones that Robin found that we have them all coded that we're in political settings. And one I will never forget is, uh, so uh, a woman was walking up to a table, it was a dinner, I believe. And uh, there was a man who was in public service, I think at the municipality level, and his wife was sitting next to him on the left. Okay, so he's in a chair, his wife is on the left, and the woman who also serves in public office came and sat at the table, and she left a chair between the man and herself, and she sat down, and he patted the chair with his wife sitting on his left, patted the chair between him and her, and said, bring your sexy body over here. (laughs) 
What? I know. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing not really because it's funny, because it's so, I don't know, what is cringe. the word? It's cringe. Yes, it's, it's just so inappropriate on every level. Um, so was there a comeback? Was there a snappy comeback? Or what would you remember. recommend? What would you recommend? Well, isn't that exactly the, the kind of place where you're so shocked because it's so inappropriate. It's so unprofessional. And it's public. In a public setting. I mean, it, and so we're hoping, one of the things we that we found in the study was the examples of humor. And the, we called them snarkiness. We, we made a category for snarkiness because in a lot of situations, that's the only thing to come up with. But in that moment, you are so shocked coming up with the snarky combat comment come back it might take you 15 20 minutes right to come up with the right thing so um susan that example of the sexual object objectification in inappropriate settings it's never appropriate but in the workplace setting you know it's a particularly egregious and and so those are a lot of comments so i mean i don't have one offhand that's that's part of the work we're going to be doing for the for the next four uh briefs is is pulling out the best comments we have and also drawing from other resources to make sure that we're coming up with really wonderful comebacks for those types of situations. So one of mine, Laura, one of my comments that I've used a couple times, but I've given out many times, is I wrote a Forbes piece a while ago on, on you know, it is a problem to call women girls, right? And so I've used it a couple times and it is kind of snarky. But, and I smile when I do it, but it doesn't slam someone down, but hopefully the message gets across. So I've been in a couple of meetings the last couple of years where people in the room will say something about the men in their workplace, both in a workplace setting, the men in their workplace, and they will say, you know, the men and then the girls in the office. And I will just come back and say something like, well, will the boys be doing this as well? You know, that's all. I, I'll just pose some kind of boys. And then you'll just see people just with smirks on their faces. It's like they got it. That's really all I need to say. But they have it. It's turn, um, and it's I turnabout. Turnabout is fair yeah, play. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, you know, it gets into a bit of our culture wars, I'm guessing. And I'm curious how your briefs will play out in the future because a lot of what happens i think for women when they experience this is a calculation that's going at light speed do i acknowledge it do i say something what's the blowback if i am offended if i do snarky if i fight fire with fire? it's like all going on at the same time dr Matson. absolutely what we know is that that women, especially in masculine environments, and by the way, I call them invisible masculine cultures. A lot of our companies are, but particularly STEM and, and areas where there's just mostly men, even in other areas where it's half and half, you really have to be careful. But in those STEM environments and some of the tech companies and different things, you've got to, you work with mostly men. So where do you, where do you like, really take your stand and what do you do you just keep taking the hits and throughout the decades i will say laura that that's what a lot of women who have been successful have just taken the hits and ignored it and ignored it and ignored it however this is the problem because when you look at the younger generation the the millennial generation and so forth they're just not going to put up with that. It's like, and what, what they do when tech CEOs ask me why we're hiring women, why are they not staying? 
it's that invisible masculine culture. And they're saying, wait, I don't belong. They're trying to include me. They're trying to get diversity, but I don't belong. And I don't know why I don't belong, but it doesn't feel right. And I'm leaving. And, uh, you know, so some of the women that have just taken the hits and, and say, you just have to deal with it. We're getting to a point where people are saying, well, no, we don't want to just deal with it. We want an inclusive environment. And then I don't think the workplaces are prepared for those demands because I remember as a kid, my mom telling me, you don't have to do things the way I did. You don't have to accept things the way I did in my generation. You can do things differently. And eventually each generation successfully moves the needle, hopefully forward. But sometimes it feels, especially in our political divisiveness right now, that we want to move a needle backward to almost a madman kind of age. So when I sit here and listen to these comments that in 2021, I'm just like, oh, is there hope, Dr. Madsen? I, I think there is hope. And I know Robin and I, in our conversations, we're like, this is so important. This is just, but this will help. We truly believe it. And we believe that it'll help not just women, but men. I know a lot of men that will be interested because sometimes you say things, even women, we might say things and, and it really is sexist. And, but it's, it's, I don't know, I don't want to call anything minor, but it's just this, this maybe thing that a lot of people wouldn't consider sexist when it is. Robin, I know you. And I wanted to jump in and add, we have these examples of the very egregious, very out there kinds of comments. But another thing that we found in the study was a lot of these comments are very subtle. um, And and without a doubt, the person who's making them doesn't understand in any way that they're sexist. Some of them are unconscious. One of the examples that we had was a student from a classroom who had professors say, get into groups of four or five, and the person with the longest hair is going to take the notes. Right. And so, of course, in almost any comment, that's going to be a woman in in any small group. And this, you know, teacher didn't think, oh, I'm being sexist. I'm discriminating against the women in this class. But unconsciously, he had done that. And so part of our our purpose and goal with this is to help people to, to help women, of course, but also help men who might not understand. Oh, I never realized I have these. We all have unconscious biases. We know that. Well, not all of us know that, but we all certainly have them. And, and when we start to demonstrate these types of things, yes, they are in fact sexist. Yes, they do disadvantage women. We're hoping to educate by those who are open-minded enough to actually listen and learn that they're gonna recognize, oh, I'm gonna change some of the ways that I make comments and interact with the women at my workplace or whatever setting I'm in. So Robin, what are some of the conclusions and recommendations in this initial brief? So this was this was really just an overview to talk about what was coming next, but we absolutely have some um, conclusions that we can already see coming up from the rest of the study. First of all, is that all of us need to be more aware of the way the interactions that we're having are affecting the women and men in all our settings and environments. So first of all, we need to raise awareness. Second of all, we need to understand that these comments do have consequences. You touched on this a little bit before about how this was affecting women. We have a whole section, a whole section subcategory about women being left out of workplace opportunities because of their gender. Comments like, oh, we can't go to this Uh, We can't drive to this conference together because it's just the two of us in a car and that would look inappropriate or that wouldn't be, you know, okay, people will get the wrong idea. And so women, we we know this happens, but these uh, comments that we got absolutely demonstrated it, that that women are being left out of promotions, um, opportunities, and, and 
chances for leadership because of the sexism that's still inherent and underlying a lot of our culture. So that's another thing that we've really got to work on. Dr. Madsen, what does a study like this do for the public conversation? Because I think since it's a never-ending problem, people just kind of go, "Ah, what you going to do? But this provides qualitative and quantitative data that um, you can present. And I don't want to say force the conversation, but you can't turn away from it. Well, I really think that, that women will be interested and men will be interested. Not all women, not all men, of course. But what... I've worked with a lot of men who I would say are male allies and men that that are moving along the path and have some interest. Yet every time I talk, not every time, but most of the time when I talk to these people, they are saying, teach me, help me, give me some tools. (laughs) Like help this really, instead of just talking about sexism and how it plays out, a lot of people don't know what that means. And they don't understand things like benevolent sexism or how it plays out. They're just looking at that really egregious kind of, of sexism that's out there. So, so our real, our real desire and purpose is to create awareness, education, and tools so that uh, companies and organizations, our government, churches, you know, whatever families, right, families themselves have some tools. And and I think I'm hoping the discussions, we didn't do this to, to, to hit someone across the hand, you know, like bad, bad, bad. We did this, like, this is exciting to have this data that can really help us go to the next level in terms of companies, in terms of people, even in relationships, right? Well, this is a real binary conversation that gets at gender and gender roles. Do you think that this kind of, of, of information has benefit to our pronoun conversations, to LGBTQ equality as well? I would think so. Robin, By when you looked at all of the... Robin... I've looked at many comments, but Robin has looked at every single one, I think, um, and and coded, like, how many codes did you have, Robin? Oh, a lot. More than 30, right? More than 30 individual codes. So in, in terms of, we did have a section for intersectionality and the way that some of these sex sense comments also had to do with people's religion, race, weight, uh, age, uh, a lot of different categories. So so we were looking at that. But absolutely, I think anytime that you're driving a conversation where we're talking about how people are discriminated against, where we're talking about how people are stereotyped or labeled, that it is a valuable conversation to recognize that these types of things are happening, not just between genders, but across the spectrum and you know in, in different sectors of discrimination and bias as well. So absolutely, I think a lot of our findings will be relevant and hopefully they'll start to open broader conversations in some of these other areas as well. Well, Robin Scribner, Dr. Madsen, thanks so much for giving us some time. I know there's some other things coming up. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about anything else that you'd like to put on people's radar here, Dr. Madsen. Well, we're excited on November 12th this week to have our last event of the semester, which will be on Zoom, and it's called Strengthening Your Your Emotional Health as Women. And it's Friday at noon, and, and you can get get there at our homepage at utwomen.org. So we'll have a whole whole bunch more events uh, starting in January, February that we'll have online in the next couple of weeks. But that's that's an important one, Laura, the emotional health, particularly for women, particularly during the pandemic, really, as that continues. And then Robin, what's the next brief out of this study? 
So the next one will be focusing on that inequity and bias. We're going to have a lot of examples of the comments. So you were asking about them. That's one of the things we wanted to be sure to do is give specific examples in these subsequent briefs. So a lot about unconscious bias, which we hope will really open eyes to say, oh, I didn't realize that that could come across as sexist. I'm going to change that. So, so be on the lookout for that. It's going to be fantastic. And we'll have you back to dig into it then as well. Thank you so much, both of you. Thanks. It's great to be with you as always. Thanks so much. And that's Dr. Susan Madsen and Rob. Robin Scribner of the Utah Women and Leadership Project. Check tonight's show notes for a link to their events, their briefs, as well as all of our other guests this evening. My thanks to all of them for taking time to be part of the show tonight and you for listening and supporting Radioactive here on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! is next. Have a great night.